How are we doing? Yay? Stoked to be at church? Ooh, it's going to be a good one. <laughs> As Dad said, um, I'm part of the WIRED youth team here at BBC, and I truly love it. We have um, around 170 teenagers come here on every Wednesday night, and um, our teenagers are the coolest, truly. And um, as a shameless plug, we're always looking for people to be involved, so if you want to hit us up after, it's, um, it's a lot of fun and um, it's a real adventure. Speaking of adventures, being a part of my family, there were always adventures. And um, so I love a good adventure, but I'm not very good at them. Uh, in fact, for me, most of the time it ends up a misadventure. A couple of years ago, we were uh, on a holiday in the United States and we went snow skiing. I hadn't skied in years, and, um, but was having a great time. The snow was beautiful, clear days. It was treated just like heaven on earth. It was beautiful. And uh, we were about 10 days into skiing, and I was riding up in the chairlift with my dad, and uh, we saw this person being towed down the mountain on a stretcher. And I turned to dad, and I said, oh, man, that would suck to be that person. Like, how embarrassing. Well... The very next run, a group of us were coming down the mountain and everyone stopped to decide which way they were going to go. And um, here I come going far too fast for my skills or lack of. And uh, I came in to do a tight turn and honestly it would have been epic had I not clipped my skis and completely ruined myself. I lay in the snow in complete agony and humbly, very humbly, I had to be taken off the mountain, being towed by a stretcher, and towed in a stretcher. Dad just thought it was a great photo opportunity. <laughs> Thankfully, I was still able to continue on with my holiday in a knee brace, where we carried on to New York, and everyone decided that it would be best for me to be in a wheelchair, so I wouldn't slow anyone down. The sidewalks and roads are terrible in New York. They're full of heaps of potholes and people. And uh, my dad was pushing me along and drove me straight into a pothole. And I literally went flying across the road. And I can still remember everyone's faces as I came hurling towards them. So after two days of more injuries and embarrassment after my dad's terrible wheelchair driving, I decided I'd had enough and the wheelchair was gone. A couple of days later, we were heading to a show and uh, I was feeling pretty good. Um, bought a new pair of heels and wanted to wear them and uh, the knee brace definitely did not match the outfit, so off it went. Well, we were waiting to get into the show and uh, I took half a step and my knee gave out. I fell to the floor in complete agony and uh, my compassionate father just stood there looking over me saying, what would you do that for? A three-minute and $3,000 ambulance ride later, and by that face, a lot of pain relief. It was discovered I'd broken my fibula, my tibia. I had cut through the ligaments and tendons in my leg and separated my ankle. Unfortunately, this time my holiday was over, and I had to come home for surgery, three surgeries, in fact. And uh, I was in a cast and a moon boot for nearly six months. It was a fun time. For the flight home from the States, I was put in business class, 
and um, was able to take one person with me on the flight home. So after my dad's very sympathetic comments, after I broke my leg, I took mum with me in business class. <laughs> you know, sometimes our pain and suffering is a direct result of our stupid decisions, or in my case, a series of stupid decisions. Or is this just me? In our Western society, we strive for comfort and pleasure, and quite often when pain and suffering comes along, we get a surprise and we're like, where did this come from? As much as we try and avoid it and deny it, suffering is something that can't be put aside and forgotten about. It comes and it rears its ugly head every time disaster strikes, every time a family member gets sick, and for others the challenge might be financial, psychological, or interpersonal. Just this week, uh, my dad was reading the newspaper in Singapore, and uh, the front cover talked about how 22 people in the Mumbai railway station were crushed, and 36 people were injured as there was a human stampede of people trying to get to the train to get out of the rain. Children and many others were completely trampled. What's crazy is that this isn't, is something that happens on a regular occurrence. It wasn't just a one-off event. An average of 10 people a day die on the Mumbai railway station alone. Suffering is all around us. Everyone experiences pain. So today we're going to take a dive into the book of Job, who's one of our main men when it comes to pain and suffering. And we're going to take a look at a few of the characters in the story. Job. So, Job is this wealthy man from the land of Uz. He has a wife, he's got 10 kids, and uh, he has thousands of sheep, thousands of cattle, camels, oxen, donkeys, and heaps of servants. The Bible tells, tells us that Job was a good and blameless man. So much so that Satan appeared before God after roaming the earth, and God said, Have you seen my servant Job? There's no one like him on earth. He is a man who fears God and shuns evil. Satan's looking at Job and his great life and basically says to God, the only reason he's this good is because you've protected him. If you were to take all of that away, then surely God would curse you. Uh, he would curse you, God. God said to Satan, you can touch everything he has, but don't touch him. So Job's animals were either stolen or killed, his servants were killed, and his ten children were also killed, leaving just Job and his wife. That's a seriously bad day. But Job does not curse God. As if that wasn't enough, Satan went back to God and said that a man will give everything he has for his own life. So God said that he could touch Job so long as he didn't kill him. So Job was afflicted with painful sores from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. And we find Job in complete despair. He tore his robe, shaved his head, and cursed the day he was born, questioning why he was having to endure so much. How many times have we been in these moments of complete despair and rather than asking who me, 
we find ourselves asking, why me? Throughout my life, like I'm sure all of you, there has been far too many moments where I've asked this question, why me? Some of you will be familiar with my story. Um, I moved to Australia in 2006, and not long after, I met this fresh-faced, handsome young man named Carl. And uh, Carl was the nicest person you would have ever met. Everybody loved Carl, and for good reason. Carl was um, definitely a metro male who hated his curly hair. He lived by his hair straightener. And uh, after spending time with my dad, he became a lover of the outdoors and the bush where he would even leave the hair straightener behind. Carl worked uh, for a Christian radio station where they broadcast into other countries like India and China. And uh, he loved church and was involved in many areas. He was passionate about worship and led a number of worship teams throughout our church. Um, He truly was a bit of a golden boy. Now, I might be a little bit biased because I did get to marry him when I was just 21 years old. And uh, it's a bit of a cliche, but my wedding day was truly one of the best days of my life. We had this big group of Aussies come over uh, to New Zealand for it, and we got to hang out. The boys went hunting before our wedding, and it was just this great time of socializing and good food. It was a really special time for us. Carl and I were great friends, and we always had so much fun together. In um, February of 2013, Carl wasn't feeling very well. He had a cold and a bit of a chest infection. So we went to the doctor, uh, where through a blood test, Carl was diagnosed with leukemia. From there, we were rushed to the hospital, where we were told that if we didn't begin treatment straight away, he would have one to two weeks left to live. So obviously this was a massive shock, and we found ourselves having to relocate to Brisbane so that Carl could receive full-time treatment at the Royal Brisbane Hospital. At the beginning of Carl's treatment, there was a lot of hope that the treatment would be successful. But as time went on, we found out that the odds of Carl getting better were slim, around 20% chance of a cure. He was found to have a genetic mutation that they'd never seen before. Carl's name was spelt with a K and was often called Special K. And, uh, but this was just not a time that you wanted to be special or unique. Carl was such a trooper, though, through everything that they put him through. He had this amazing ability to bounce back. He never whinged. The hospital staff loved him. He even helped one of the male nurses uh, plan his marriage proposal. He was often found to be smiling even as we practically lived at the hospital. Again, everybody loved Carl. After a few months of chemotherapy, Carl continued to relapse and never made a full remission. However, they decided to go ahead with the stem cell transplant, which is a modern day version of a bone marrow transplant. So after a long time, they were able to find a partial match for him and he had the transplant. The transplant process is one where they deplete the body so much that they basically kill everything inside so that when you get given these new cells, they have a chance of being able to fight the leukemia cells. It's a seriously hideous procedure and uh, one where Carl was given a 30% chance that he wouldn't even actually survive the process. 
65 days after Carl had received the stem cell transplant, Carl had another regular blood test and it showed that the transplant didn't work and Carl was now terminal. We went back home to the Sunshine Coast and we had a great time hanging out with family and friends, having lots of fun and creating memories. And then five weeks later, on the 17th of February, my best friend died. He was 25 years old. Why me? Christians often have many theories for suffering. You know, God is punishing you. No, it's not God, it's Satan punishing you. No, it's God who's handpicked you to give him the glory. No, you just won the suffering lottery. Journeying over this time with Job was three of Job's friends. They started off well. They sat with Job in complete silence for seven days, as was customary of the day. But then they started talking. And for 35 chapters, we have Job and his friends giving these great big speeches, finding reasons as to why Job is suffering. In Job chapter 4, verses 7 to 8, his friends say, Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. And again in Job chapter 8, verse 20, surely God does not reject one who is blameless or strengthen the hands of evildoers. Job's friends believed that his suffering was a result of his sin. When Carl was sick, our friends and family were amazing. Uh, we truly couldn't have asked for better people in our lives. The generosity of our Aussie friends and Bethlehem Baptist as well, just blew us away and we really could never have done the journey without them. However, we also had very lots of well-meaning people share with us why they believed Carl had leukemia. Some friends, like Job's friends, believed that it was a result of the sin in Carl's life. Others believed that I, his wife, was to blame for Carl's illness. We even had people provide us with prayers to read like a remedy and a formula for healing. If we read these verses and these prayers out loud three times in the morning and three times in the evening, Carl would be healed. It was that simple and didn't even cost you $3.99 per prayer. Christian author Philip Yancey identifies this as contract faith. You do good, you get blessed. You do bad, you get punished. It's simplistic and easy to understand, but it's a naive way of viewing God. You can't reduce God to a formula. The first two chapters of Job is where Satan is challenging God over the reasons for Job's loyalty. These chapters make us really uncomfortable. We don't like the idea that God allowed Job to suffer. Because common sense and reason tell us that God would treat us fairly, right? You know, one of the biggest problems with our human condition is that we always insist on knowing the answers, or at least wanting to know the reason why. 
Why is this happening to us? You know, we have this unrealistic idea that if we simply knew why this was happening, then we would be comforted by that. We're assuming that if we could see things from God's perspective, we'd be comforted. But this is hopeful at best, because how can we truly expect to know the mind of God when it comes to the complexities of a fallen world? For example, if somehow I found out through Carl's death that a whole village in Africa was saved because of his death, it still wouldn't be enough for me and my grief to justify it. Like Job's friends, Job's wife believed that there was an immediate connection between suffering and sin. Job's wife, who would have no doubt been grief-stricken and overwhelmed by the losses they suffered, comes to Job and says, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. During the five weeks that Carl and I were back on the Sunshine Coast, we were able to attend one of our friend's weddings. And um, at this wedding, we got talking to an older friend of ours who we used to be involved uh, together in leading youth ministry. And we were explaining to him that Carl was terminal. And he very plainly said to us, if I was you guys, I would have lost my faith in God and be questioning his very existence. This comment truly blew Carl and I away, not just because of who was saying the comment, but for how for so many people, like Job's wife, their faith is based on whether or not they perceive God as good to them or not. Then we come to Job. We find Job in chapter 30, verses 20 to 27. He says, I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly with the might of your hand, you attack me. You snatch me up and drive me before the wind. You toss me about in the storm. I know you will bring me down to death to the place appointed for all the living. Surely no one lays a hand on a broken man when he cries for help in distress. Have I not wept for those in trouble? Has not my soul grieved for the poor? Yet when I hoped for good, evil came. When I looked for light, then came darkness. The churning inside me never stops. Days of suffering confront me. Job's speeches contain so much pain and despair and outrage where he vents his feelings and is in protest against God. He questions God's fairness. He questions God's goodness. And he questions God's love. Eventually, out of sheer frustration, Job's one request is for an explanation from God. Why God? Why me? Job is crying out to God, throwing his grief, doubt, anger, and disappointment at God, yet God remains silent. During the time of Carl's illness, we had this overwhelming sense that God was with us and providing a peace that I truly just can't explain. However, after Carl's funeral and and things had settled down again, I found myself in so much pain. The grief felt physical. So much sadness and for such a long time. I felt like God had become completely silent. 
He felt so far away and nothing like the closeness that Carl and I had experienced with him before he died. I begged God to speak to me. Answer me, why did Carl have to die? I felt like God had stopped talking to me. He was silent. Even though there were no signs of comfort from God, Job never turned his back on God. Job 13 verse 15 says, Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. And Job 19 verse 25, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. One of the last speeches given in the book of Job is one from God. God finally breaks his silence. God isn't found to be concerned with Job's questions, but rather addresses Job's ignorance. God doesn't answer any of Job's questions or gives Job an explanation. God, in fact, avoids the topic of suffering altogether and instead asks Job a series of questions, completely sweeping Job off his feet, talking about the wonders of this world that he created. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons? Do you know when the mountain goat gives birth? I don't know about you, but it frustrates me that God doesn't answer Job's questions, but leaves Job and us with this question. Will a human trust an invisible and sovereign God even when everything around them seemingly discredits God's goodness or even his existence. For me, after Carl's death, it felt like a real battle. These are just a a couple of the journals that I filled out in the two years after Carl died. These journals are filled with uh, anger, disappointment, disillusionment, feelings of abandonment, Loneliness, begging God for the strength to not just get through each day, but sometimes just the next five minutes. Not long after um, Carl died, I went back to work on a project for eight months, and uh, it was a really busy job, but I had this commute, which was one and a half to two hours each way, um, as I was generally stuck in traffic. And many of those car trips were just spent ranting at God. Each day after work, I would go for a walk and call my mum and spend the next 40 minutes ranting and crying to her. Mums are good like that. Generally, after each rant, I would get to this breaking point where you'd almost give up fighting and you just find yourself taking refuge in God. We find in the book of John that many of Jesus' disciples were struggling with some of his teaching. In John chapter 6, verses 65 to 69, read, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. For me, I had to go back to the bare bones of my faith, back to the beginning and piece it all back together again. Do I truly believe God has me in the palm of his hand? Do I believe that God cares for me and loves me? Do I believe I have a future again? Do I believe I will get to see Carl again? And ultimately, who do I trust? Sometimes when we're going through hard times, we become short-sighted and can only barely see what's in front of us. One of the things that we have to remember is that this life isn't it. God holds eternity in his hands. It's one of the reasons why death feels so unjustified is because we were designed with eternity in our hearts. Even though after Carl died, people came up to me and said, don't worry, you know, we grieve with hope. Those words never really sunk in in those moments of grief. But the truth is, is that we do have a loving God who gives us a hope-filled, eternal perspective. I had to choose, yes, choose to trust God. We're not powerless. We choose our response. We choose to trust God and trust that he has the bigger picture in hand. Ultimately, God was showing Job a bigger, more hopeful perspective of the world, and that is what he promises for us too. I just want to end with Ecclesiastes 3.11. He has made beautiful, everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Trust him.